Welcome to the first episode of Occulted. My name is Jove Spooky, and I'm excited to bring you this conversation today with witch and medieval scholar Erica Roberts. Join us as we dive into the magical potency of academia, the holy sites of Wales and Ireland, and the healing power of ancestor work. Erica is a postgraduate research student at the University of Reading. Her interdisciplinary research is on gender and early medieval Wales with an emphasis on material culture, inscriptions, and hagiography. This work connects magical practices and root work through connection to land, ancestor veneration, and the preservation of culture, language, and teaching. Her past research explores the history and archaeology of medieval folklore, witchcraft, sex, and gender in medieval Ireland and Wales. Erica has also written on feminist history, Latin American history, and gender as it relates to religion. Thank you for joining us today and exploring this first episode of Occulted. Welcome, Erica. Thank you for joining our first show today. Let's dive right in. Tell me a little bit about what you've been working on lately. Thank you so much for having me. So I am currently finishing up my thesis on early medieval wells and gender, and I study the inscribed stone and stone sculpture. And I am a queer, and I'm a witch, I'm an academic, and I study archaeology and history, and the threads of my research really pull together the relationship between the living and the dead. So I'm really excited to talk more about it. That's beautiful. It sounds like you dive into it in a pretty interdisciplinary way. Yeah, yeah, I do. So just a little bit more background on my most current research. Throughout my academic career, it's been seven years of grad school now and 12 years total of university. So I study things like witchcraft, magic, sex, gender, the relationship between how we study past societies and their views of, you know, the occult. And I think things that are still present with us today and a lot of the same questions that we tend to bring to our own society and looking at how did how did they look at things like power in the land, identity. And with my specific research, it really brings together historical and archaeological methods to look at the inscribed stone monuments that are the surviving sources for early medieval wells. I know that in addition to more formal methodologies, this research has been informed by your own experience as a practitioner. What is your connection to spirituality and the occult? The way that I connect to the occult, and I think the way that I pretty much naturally, I think, drawn to these topics is through my own family history and my own journey of connecting to my roots. And I've identified as a witch since I was like, I think, 10. (laughs) And so do you have a family connection to witchcraft? So I actually grew up extremely religious. I grew up Mormon and my entire family got very Mormon. And 
I had a great grandmother who she was baptized Mormon when she was little, but she never really went to church. I never really grew up in it. And she was still alive when I was younger. She actually didn't pass away until I was about 24. So she was a big part of my life. And she was a practicing witch. And my mother was very close with her. And my mother, you know, tried to be very good Mormon woman. (laughs) But even when I was young, she actually would always tell us that she was a witch. It's kind of like a little fun thing for her. And I think because of that, she, you know, there was always this like other connection to something else that was much more empowering. I think, especially for women who grew up in a very patriarchal type of religion, Mormonism, like pretty much every other patriarchal religion, like priesthood is close to men only. And there's not really a lot of space to connect to female divinity or even like a non-gender divinity it is it's very like masculine so even like the holy spirit in mormonism is seen as a male and jesus and god are seen as male-bodied actually like humans so being raised within this strict religious structure of patriarchy and masculinity what was it that helped you see things differently I have two sisters, so I have an older sister who's three years older, and then a younger sister who's three years younger, and then there's three of us, so a lot of like power of three type of energy going on, and my older sister, she was, you know, very, very into occult things, and she really, I think, pulled us together and, you know, basically had her own little coven, and we do just like little spell work and we would walk to the library all the time because this was, you know, before the internet. So we'd walk to the library all the time and just like browse the bookshelves. So always go to like the magic section and like all the, you know, books on witchcraft. And I remember being like 10 years old and reading a book that had to do with the feminine divine. And it blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is so different from what I'm learning at church or at home. And, you know, it was, you know, I think it was a very, like, elementary introduction into just looking at the occult, which I think appropriate for me as a 10-year-old to sort of question, like, okay, so you have all these past societies that have goddesses, and what happened to them? And fast forward 20 years, I've spent a considerable amount of time studying religion, theology, and magic, witchcraft, spirituality, very, very in-depth. And my ideas have evolved as well with those understandings and life experience. And I think it's something I'm still developing and still learning in this journey. I just feel like really grateful that I was I was able to have two witchy sisters with me um, in this existence and really hone into that type of power And all three of us, it's so beautiful, like really express it in our own ways and have our own relationships with the occult. But I think it's what ties it together, you know, is really this this power, this, I don't necessarily want to say like necessarily feminine power, but I think it's a lot of the absence of what we were growing up with in church and in our home and in our teachings and that has definitely stayed with me as the source of empowerment and has led me to wanting to understand what it is that we don't see necessarily 
And to me, that defines the occult. It is the shadow work. It's what's in the shadows. It's the obscure. My personal connection and my journey is still ongoing, but to my specific research within Wells, I have ancestral connection to the land and to the landscape. And using, you know, archaeological methodology, it's very focused on the landscape and the power of the landscape. And so it was really important to me to connect with the land there. And so this sense, I think, let's see, 2017, um, I was living in the UK and was able to really be physically present with the places that my ancestors were from. And even before that, I actually spent time in an excavation in Ireland as well. And yeah, very magical experience. I think that all of my research, whether it's been about St. Bridget and abortion, witchcraft, sexuality, and my more recent research, which has to do with the inscribed stone and stone monuments that were mostly used as memorial markers from the living kin to honor the deceased kin and how their connection to the landscape, especially placing the stone monuments usually on top of or next to Bronze Age mounds, which spanned thousands of years before they even existed, really speaks to a continuity of the human, almost like the human condition. What I have taken away a lot from my research is this concept of ancestor worship, connection and ties to the land, and in the cases of the excavation work I've done, the thinning of the veil, and I think of the tending to the bones, I think is another really good way that I would see my work and my connection to the occult. It's beautiful, the symmetry here of these sites and places of power that people keep returning to, but you also keep returning to them. Yeah, I know. I think that that is very beautiful. That's a huge theme in my research is this idea of honoring the people who came before them and consciously connecting to past ancestors and past people who become part of the land and you become tied to the land. And it's something I'm continuing to do all these generations later. Well, there's a pilgrimage aspect as well, it would seem. This is my first time talking about it, so I'm really excited. So my great-grandparents were from Holywell Wells in Flintshire, and it's in North Wells. And Holywell is a place where, essentially, with all Holywells in the British Isles, there's most likely a more ancient element to the wells. We don't necessarily have records, but this is something that we've been able to infer as archaeologists through legends and stories. And with Holywell, it is the largest pilgrimage site in the British Isles. And it has been an active pilgrimage site for at least a thousand years. It's very, very ancient. And the legend around Holywell, I do want to just say what it is. I think it ties into what we're talking about really well. There was a woman named Winifred, and she she had a suitor who was actually the prince, Prince Calog in Wales, and she, this is typical of a lot of the sort of legends around female saints, is that she did not want to marry him, and she wanted to basically marry Jesus and be a nun, and kind of the, the piety story of like, look how pious I am, like I'm only going to be married to Jesus, but there's always this act of violence that's 
done against these women who choose that life which is really fascinating when you really I think think about things like gender and power and agency that you have to go through this journey of male violence against you to get there and she had her head cut off by Prince Kadok and where her head rolled a spring appeared and then miraculously her head was attached back to her body and sort of this like resurrection story and throughout these centuries people have from kings to peasants have been visiting this holy well. I think King Charles was the last monarch who went there and you're able to like go completely immerse yourself into the waters and going back there having that knowledge that my family's from that exact village was so fascinating for me because I did I went in I plunged myself in and I think it was for me my own act of reclaiming a lot of my own my own agency that's really beautiful a self rebaptism of sorts how has that site changed over time and how did that visit impact your perspective on it it is currently owned by the catholic church And it was really interesting because when you walk in, there's a little museum that shows the history of the Holy Well and a lot of Catholic propaganda. And when you go out, there's there's an active priest who's also there. So I went with my partner and when we went, I was kind of just doing my own thing. And I kid you not, there was an intense dark vibe that was there. There was the family there that I was just getting this really intense energy from. And there was a moment where the other woman who was there, she there's a space where the spring directly goes into the font. There's like a barrier. Like you the guests and the visitors are supposed to not go into that specific font where the spring is. And this woman, she put her feet in there and the priest came and yelled at her. And (laughs) it was really, really intense energy where I didn't even realize how much it took me a long time, I think, to process it because it like to me, I was trying to have like my own personal journey and experience. And I was a little bit like off putting to like in the middle of that to like have a priest come yell at this woman. and. Like, I was just like, oh, man, like, at the time, I, like, was just, like, okay, well, that's weird. But I think as I've been processing it, I really do think it, <laughs> it speaks to these these same issues, these same things about power and authority and patriarchy and who has access to what and this culture, yeah. you know, growing up Mormon, growing up in this religion of a lot of rules and a lot of shaming and a lot of who can do what and being, you know, chastised for things and punished for things. And yeah, it, t- it took me a while to, I think, realize that I like needed that to happen to sort of pull together the reason why us living in the 21st century more than ever i think the disenfranchised are more empowered in certain ways and i think even how it's taken me directionally to see the ways that even within the structures of academia there are a lot of limitations and a lot of that still i think does have to do with the systemic issues around the 
patriarchy of academia. And even though it's shifting, it's sort of one of those questions of like, okay, just because you're inserting, I guess, quotas into a space, like how much is that systemically changing things? And I think that the accumulation of those experiences has really pushed me to see that directing my energy even towards other platforms, even doing this podcast and wanting to open up about my own research and my connection to my research in ways that academia does not necessarily hold space for. And because of that, it's been a challenge, but I think it's also created an opportunity to hopefully, I think, reach out to other people who are in the system and structure of academia who understand that like the research and the writing that is all magic that is magic i think we take it for granted the fact that we're like able to use this technology and be communicating to each other and sharing our ideas in such a like accessible and fluid way more than ever before and i think that someone as like an archaeologist and a historian i am hyper aware of that And, you know, because even with like the inscribed stone monuments that I was referring to earlier in my most recent research, those monuments were commissioned by a very specific type of person. You had to be elite and a male to commission those stone monuments. And the inscriptions are the names of male and their deceased kin. And the language around it it's a latin which came from the roman empire and then the ogham alphabet which came from the irish language that was used at the time and those inscriptions those were only really meant for the literate people as well which was a very small group of people and i think that like putting that into so much context and understanding gender and power and even where they're placing these monuments in the landscape of reinforcing those ties to legitimate claims to the land is a reality that we do still live in. However, in many, many ways, I think a way to bring it to, I think, a 21st century audience to to understand is if you look at your own cityscape, you look at your own landscape, what are the names on the buildings? Whose names are those? And who built those buildings? Who had the money to even build those buildings in the first place? And who's being displaced by building those buildings? I think those are really important questions that we should be asking. And I I think a lot of people are asking in a lot of activist spaces, especially, you know, us, like, you know, I'm talking about the British Isles, but us, I think, even living in the U.S. at the moment, we are on other people's land as well. And I think that there's a lot of relevance to my research that, like, you know, is very relevant to today that those questions around just power and the type of magic and goes into the land and whether there's respect and whether there's deeper connection and actually taking the time to untangle like a lot of the enigmatic parts of this. It's an extremely rigorous academic endeavor and it is not something that I necessarily came up with concrete answers around. And that is why I actually love academia. I think it gives a space for people to ask really hard questions and, you know, experiment, try something, come up with a methodology, come up with what your approaches are to this, try it out, see what you can come up with. 
And it's a very privileged space to be working within. And I do want to acknowledge that. On the flip side, I think that what ends up a lot of the times happening is that it becomes very void of the realness of the people who are actually participating in these practices and who are participating in this research. And the felt and lived experience. Right. And so that has been an interesting aspect of being someone who's drawn to wanting to do very deep work, deep research, ask hard questions, and who is, you know, I'm someone that's very influenced by the the magic and the occult that's behind it. Sometimes, you know, like there's not really space for that to, to talk about in academia. And um, I have found, for example, within archaeology, what actually really drew me to another aspect of wanting to really study um, the specific, like even time period that I study, it being this very obscure time period where the dark ages, you know, is really what it's kind of known colloquially. And I think even within that, like the connotations, it's a problematic term, the dark ages, but I think what it has represented within academia and within popular culture is that there's something very unknown and very obscure about this time period. And that in itself, I think, has driven me just in my, you know, my shadow work of wanting to understand, like, why is this so obscure? Why is this so, like, unknown? And I think that people who are, like, more drawn to the occult or who embody the occult, they are people who are very much drawn to the the sort of shadow aspects of our society and our our world and and trying to understand it and don't really like shy away from it. You mentioned ancestor work and connecting with the dead specifically, and that's such a beautiful and important part of connecting with the power of place and land as well. Yeah, I even want to just touch on that. I did my first excavation in 2015, and we were working on a cemetery of a monastery in Trim in Ireland in County Meath. And this experience speaks well to a lot of the disconnect between academia and occult practitioners is technically, again, like it's a Catholic country, Ireland, and the Catholic Church did retract their views on burial and resurrection. And like basically for archaeologists to be able to do the research on these populations, they have to excavate the inhumation burials, remove the bones. And essentially what we're doing is we place the bones into plastic bags and take them to a lab. And then they're looked at and they're analyzed very clinically. And before that, they go through this like post-excavation station where you spend time cleaning the bone either using like wooden chisel or toothbrush, very delicate with them, because these bones are seen as essentially data and very like clinical approach to to something that, you know, for, for me, like, it was like this occult practitioner. It was so intense for me. Like I was like, wait, what? Just a little cold and clinical necromancy. What was interacting with the dead like in that context for you? One of the burials that I was a part of uncovering was a woman who was in her like early 20s. And I was in my early 20s at the time. So I was like, okay, that's this connection to that. And I remember, I think I spent like two days like cleaning her skull with a toothbrush. And it was intense. As someone who's magically connected, 
What did that feel like? Did you stand out in the group in the way that you were experiencing these things? Or? I definitely stood out in my group. We had, so we would have daily seminars and I was asked, I don't know, it was a question about osteology. We were, I mean, again, we're learning about this from like a very like scientific, clinical perspective. And I had had a conversation, I was living with a host family in Ireland and I had had a conversation with my host mom who, you know, she's this Irish woman who's lived in that town her whole life. and. Um, how she felt about us doing the excavation work there and essentially like taking these people out of their places of rest and analyzing the bones like in this really clinical way and I think that there is like there's a whole conversation that we could have about this of just I think you know the ethics of it but also just the the spiritual aspect of it these were people and the way that the person responded to me when I asked this question and I told him my experience talking to my host mom, how there there was an uneasiness within the community sometimes about it. However, you know, there's that whole aspect of like, but this is for research. We're trying to figure out what their diet was. This is very, yeah, this is important research. And I'm, I'm not trying, I have a lot of friends who are osteologists and I'm not like trying to talk shit on it. It's just more an interesting way that I was experiencing it that was very different from the rest of people in my excavation. What I've interpreting from from the differences in these approaches too is there's what feels like a, a pretty sort of patriarchal stance in this pursuit of knowledge and research over the human, over the connectedness. Yeah, yeah, that is absolutely right. There are, I think, ongoing discussions within academia just on a on a larger level right now about when you look at the history of academic institutions they were made for a very specific group of people and even when you know you look at the oldest institutions of like you know Oxford Cambridge people were going there to study theology and people who were you know elite women they, yes, they were given access to education, even within the 15th, 16th centuries, but it was very focused, right? Like it had an agenda. And, you know, you were learning the books of the Bible and how to read them in Latin and things like that. Fast forwarding into like the 21st century, again, we live in a time period where higher education is more accessible to the most people than it ever has been. And I think with those shifts, you're also seeing the inevitable pushback that ends up happening where there are very established debates and discussions around things like the male gaze in academia. Um, that's a huge part of my research and part of my um, approach, my theoretical approach is really about like challenging that and, um, you know, quote unquote, flipping the male gaze. And what that means is, you know, within academia, you have 20th century, 19th century academics who are within archaeology going to these quote-unquote undiscovered places and looking at all these like objects and peoples and material culture and then like implementing this sort of colonial and male gaze onto the so-called subjects of the study. And so what was really radical, what is really radical about my research is that I'm flipping that male gaze back onto the elite 
men of of a particular society and that can really you know that can be done in like pretty much any time period and including today and i think that that bleeds into the conversations that are happening within academia around okay you have more queer people you have the introduction of queer theory um who are taking up space in academia you have people who are coming from all types of spiritual backgrounds and who are you know even i guess like me who come from a very patriarchal christian type of background but have actively been fighting against it and you've been a part of some some pretty conservative academic institutions as well yes yes like yeah so a little bit of background like i did my undergrad at brigham young university um byu and it is a Mormon university. It's owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And to go there, you know, you have to follow like an honor code. The faculty also have their own code that they have to teach from that. Yeah, there are severe limitations in the type of topics you can talk about and the research you can do. And like granted, yes, it's a private university. However, in the state of like current affairs because i i mean i graduated from there a long time ago now it's almost been a decade which is crazy but in my time there the pros of it was that like i completely stood out um i don't know joe if you mind me telling like we met there and we're taking philosophy classes and i remember doing my like research paper for that class was on lilith yeah and i remember reading. talking about lilith being you know this this like first wife of adam and what that meant in not only just like the hebrew tradition because our professor he was like a near east scholar um but even how that would like tie into sort of almost like mormon doctrine as well and like there's nowhere else i could have written a paper like that and also nowhere else that that would have like maybe have had as much weight to to it and so like I do think that being in conservative institutions because yeah I do think that like all the universities I've gone to have been a little bit more conservative that has made it I think in some ways extra difficult a lot of topics can be taboo essentially but on top of that it can be a positive is that you know you're essentially like being disruptive even by being there. There's benefits to to staying within the penumbra of the occulted, right? Right. Your existence is a disruption. You know, if you're like, like even at the time, like I was openly queer at BYU, which even today, 10 years later, is, is a big deal. And, you know, like I was obviously outward witchy just with my parents. And I think that like things like that, they are a disruption to those systems. There's probably other universities that, like, I would probably just kind of fly under the radar, maybe. It wouldn't be as, um, yeah, like, disruptive to them. However, like, I think in general, there are there are absolutely, this feels controversial to say, so that's why I'm taking a minute to say it. Essentially, I mean, just putting people into spaces that have, like, a systemic history of disenfranchising other people just placing in othered type of people is not going to change that and it can be very slow gradual like small changes which you do see however overall it is still in my opinion a very like 
patriarchal culture of like you don't you don't bring in personal um things because it's that's seen emotional you see it's seen as a it's a bias that's seen as a bias it's seen you know that's and that is it's just very interesting that that is the way that we have developed into this like way of gatekeeping emotional spiritual oh yeah absolutely well because it's a type of bias but there are are biases that are inherent to the patriarchal system and the kind of methods of ontology that are accepted within academia that are you know sort of almost equal and opposite biases biases towards absolute materialism no yeah i i agree with that and i appreciate you saying that I wanted to jump back a little bit too and just talk about the sort of benefits of of being in this occulted sort of state or being in a place where your visibility matters. Standing out and being kind of weird means something, but also just kind of the the magic of ordeal, going through these spaces and the the challenge that I think both of us experienced in being out queer people in a place that was not safe. Magic comes from necessity and need and, and we sure sure as hell had a lot of it there. And going through that ordeal, that sort of push, I know challenged us a lot and also helped us build community in a way that I don't think we would have had, you know, somewhere else where we would have had more space. I like that line you said about magic, you know, really comes from necessity. And I think that's another like strand of there are there are, like are a lot of common threads in my research. I think gender feminism, power, magic, witchcraft. Those would be like my keywords. <laughs> but that being said, like I I've gone through personal experiences that have been deeply you know magical and deeply spiritual that I have that have driven me like towards certain spaces, certain people, certain topics certain research and have been a part of my journey of healing and of shadow work and it has been I think just like so intense at times that the culture of academia just makes it feel so fucking lonely and that is I think a really important thing to talk about is that people can be you know, dealing with really, like, I mean, I met so many people during my PhD that were, like, going through such intense things, and myself included, and yet, like, it's not a culture of community in in a way that I think is very, a very real community that's really needed. I mean, I would imagine, too, that if there's there's not space for the emotional or the spiritual within these spaces and these groups, how do you connect on that human level? How can you show up for one another if those sorts of feelings and viewpoints and communications are seen as biased or less than or just devalued by the institution? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, especially when you're studying topics that are are intense. And human. Yeah. We're talking about the lives of, of people here and their traditions and their spiritual traditions and things that were most important to them. And going back to ordeal, the stones that you've been talking about, uh, creating these and putting them in these places of power for thousands of years, that's all about emotional and spiritual resonance, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely felt that I was always, I don't know, 
I mean, I guess, like, in a poetic sense, it's, like, the black side of the moon. Like, the moon's always hiding a part of herself, right? And that is always how it felt. I'm on this journey of learning my own heritage, my own lineage, and trying to, you know, honor them by even bringing it into the present. I've been studying Welsh language for 13 years, and in that time, I have learned so much about the culture, the history, and Wales is a magical place. It is extremely magical. I mean, everyone pretty much has heard of King Arthur and Merlin and all these, and the, you know, the legends that come from there. And to talk about all of this without, I don't know, like just even on an empathetic level, like emotionally connecting to these legends and these stories and these people and seeing what they left behind and the ways that they saw the world and connected to their own ancestors and how it's this like continual journey it is extremely i don't know what i don't know how to say it just like weird to then not talk about all that <laughs> it would be hard for me to to imagine talking about them without some of the more soft and squishy parts yeah i mean it is a heavy question just because i think there's been different ways i do want to touch more on the research that I was doing during my master's program had to do with um, St. Bridget and her abortion miracles. And these, I mean, it's crazy. So essentially, like, just a little bit of context, um, abortion in Europe is really seen through the first penitential laws in Ireland. And these were, you know, compiled in like the seventh century and St. Bridget, her sort of her legends and her stories were compiled around the same time. And she was very rare as a woman who had the spiritual authority to bless other people with like a sort of priesthood power. And she she had stories and legends of nuns who would come to her with pregnant bellies and they would essentially like ask her for help and a blessing and she would do like the sign of the cross on the belly or say prayer and then the pregnancy would be gone and other academics have looked at these miracles as abortion miracles and while they're not wrong a lot of what my research, I think, brought to it and what ended up actually being in turn becoming part of my spiritual practice was that abortion is a very politically loaded term in the 21st century that doesn't necessarily apply to some of these miracles, essentially. The way that I looked at these miracles was womb healing is what I termed it. And I think that in especially aspects of magic and witchcraft and midwifery and all aspects of the womb and, um, the again, the veil of life and death, there is a lot of power there. And again, I think speaks to why in the 21st century, these things are so politicized and I really wanted to get to the root of it. Like, I mean, again, like, I really think that my research around archaeology and history, it's a root work. It's about going to the roots. And in doing that, I learned 
so much about, I mean, just so much about all the things that women had to sacrifice to have agency over their own bodies. And still do. Still do. Still do. This is so relevant. Like, that's what's so, oh, it's so relevant. And in learning all of that, like, I had gone through my own abortion and doing this research, I think, really brought me a completely different lens of looking at all of this. Again, like, stripping away the clinic, because, you know, when I had an abortion, I had to go to, like, an abortion clinic and it was super impersonable. I don't think, I mean, I don't even know. It was secretive. Like, there were there were protesters outside. I just paid like a lump sum and then you have like you know just a random doctor they don't even ask you your name like it's just and it's like it is so disconnected I think to how it could be and like you know I know that there are practitioners there's doulas out there there are like there are amazing people out there who are doing this work and her doing the serious work of decolonizing and all of this in that at the time I did not have access to any of that you know I had to go within these systems and in that in a way that experience was very traumatic for me but it didn't have to be and I think that that's what I knew deep down is that it didn't have to be traumatic and so I did a ton of research and really dwelled into looking at it from these different ways like studying medieval medicine ancient medicine just ideas around abortion around the body and agency and sexuality and magic and healing and what's considered healing, what's considered magic, what's, you know, all these different things. And just within, you know, the church perspective and things. And it's fascinating. And I think that it like really helped me to incorporate all of these learnings into my own practice. And when I was in Ireland during that excavation, I took time to go to Kildare which is where St. Bridget's Well is again like I've already talked about you know wells they have these ancient roots and St. Bridget is for sure a Christian saint who was taken from more ancient Celtic understanding of as a goddess and when I was there I collected some water and it was about a year and a half after that that my my mother, she got uterine cancer. We had a little ceremony for her before her surgery to have a hysterectomy. And that's beautiful. It was, yeah, it was so magical. Like, we had, she just had like her closest, very witchy friends and um, myself and my sisters in law. And I brought her the, the water that I had gotten from St. Bridget's Holy Well. And we blessed her with it. And you know, it was, it was very special and it was very, you know, I think empowering. And it coincided about a year after she had a divorce from my father. So she actually took on a new name and she legally changed her name to Bridget. It really came like so full circle. And my Irish roots are from her as well. So like, that was, you know, really special. So I think for me, this journey, it's always like the academic part of it, that is just part of the work of me doing this deeper work. And it's only just one facet of it. Like there are so many ways, you know, that I think that we encompass being human and being magical and doing the research. That's one aspect of me understanding and learning and doing the root work, tending to the bones, all these kind of things. 
but it is like every facet of our life is magical and i truly believe that like fully i mean it's beautiful too your primary lived experience is surrounded by all of these powerful women who are working outside of these very strict patriarchal structures but still being part of them or, or participating in them, but have not let go of this this lineage of power and agency and this beautiful occulted space. And to hear that being carried on generationally and healing that's going on is just absolutely beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I really appreciate that because I, I really think it brought, at the time of me writing and doing that re- research, I mean, I had I had no idea that I was going to have an opportunity to be part of a ceremony of womb healing myself and not only just womb healing the womb I came from which is fascinating and then I just think also the larger political issues that have unfolded I had no idea things like Roe v Wade were going to be overturned you know I was focusing on Ireland and in within Ireland at that time there were a lot of politics around abortion there still are um you know these are really relevant issues thank you for yeah like drawing attention to that because The point that I really want to drive home is that academia is a mode. It can be a mode of magic because of what it entails are things like deep thinking and a lot of empowerment in questioning, questioning everything and looking for yourself, finding things for yourself. And I think as long as, you know, we're really aware of also like what those limitations are, there's an opportunity where again in 21st century there are a lot of conversations around just even the the practicality of academia in things like finding jobs and funding and internet we have so much accessibility to information and what is the purpose of these institutions anymore and i think those questions are being directed at all types of institutions religious institutions government institutions etc that we are in a moment of being able to be really honest about that and challenging the status quo absolutely yeah Yeah. this is something i really i think is really beautiful that i do want to say because i actually don't i don't think a lot of attention has been brought towards this but i think even and this is something you know much more about than i do but the fact that the occult has continued even within like spaces of technology and it and it being like even a byproduct of technology and being a part of technology again like it is such an interesting i think thing for a historian to look at because yeah absolutely absolutely for example when i'm looking at these stone monuments and i'm seeing these inscriptions that are carved onto these stone the intention and the magic that goes into things like us creating language and creating it's like spell work right you know me writing this whole thesis and i'm like typing on this computer how this is magic you know and i think that that is something that within academia for whatever reason there's probably a lot of reasons it's taken for granted almost i think that there's a lot of just taking for granted the the awe of like what we are actually doing and what we're participating in. And right. that is something that within like archaeology has 
has been very interesting because I, even within the history of archaeology, like I talked a bit about the dark side, the colonial aspect of it, but also for my own time period, the occult is really what drove the existence of early medieval archaeology. And what I mean by that... Well, necromancy, right? Right. So necromancy, and also what I mean by that is, so there was the excavation of Sutton Hu that was in the 20th century. There was a woman named Edith Pretty. She was participating in seances in London. And she, in her farmland, she was a widow of a landowner. She knew there was something there. And she brought archaeologists there and actually centuries even prior to that during king henry the seventh's reign his court astrologer also began excavating that area it did not go any further and so it wasn't until the 20th century much later that this mound was uncovered and it was in Sutton Hoo, you know, it's a very famous excavation of ships, of a burial, and hordes and hordes of all types of, you know, material goods were uncovered from that. And that excavation is what was really the catalyst of this idea of early medieval archaeology, that there was this entire civilization and all these things going on after the Roman Empire and before the Norman incursions, and that for all that time, people was calling it the Dark Ages and nothing was going on and we have no idea what their technologies were, what they were doing. This excavation brought all of that to light, it illuminated so much for people. And it is so interesting that that is intrinsically tied to the occult. And I find, I don't know, I just find that really fascinating and, and part of the history of it that a lot of people don't really know. And yeah, like I, I just, yeah, it's really interesting. The occult roots of academia yeah. in general, I think, are so largely overlooked. As an astrologer, definitely seeing the link between astrology and early medicine and astrology and astronomy and how there really was not a strong distinction between what was occulted knowledge or, or esoteric knowledge and was, was science. It's, that's really inspiring to hear how enchanted the study of archaeology and things can be even in these spaces that feel a little bit more conservative and have a lot of respect for you for carving out this space and doing what you're doing within these systems and patriarchies and institutions and still finding and making that magic as pandemic has happened i have found that technology has brought a lot of enchantment to my own life and being able to connect with Folks who are kind of on the borderline of uh, doing academic research and study and also are practitioners and often magical service providers and whatnot, to see this overlap start to happen and this community being built online and in person is absolutely beautiful. I'm so excited to see that thread continue. Absolutely. And I think that as the generation that we're in, we do have a lot of credit to give to the internet because there. Even though, yeah, like when I first started getting into like the magic and the occult, I would say that was revealing things about myself that were always there. It really was not until the internet, like for myself, that I was able to find just so much information and community. And resonance. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It's like, shout out to Crystal Links, right? Yes. Crystal Crystal Links. (laughs) 
Shout out to Crystal Links. Yeah, we're the guinea pigs. We were just thrown into the internet. You know, what, what we were able to like create out of it and find from it. Yeah, I really believe we're just really on this cusp of understanding that there are things that we are outgrowing that perhaps maybe never served us in the first place that we are finding and creating space ourselves and what our stories are and who we are and how to connect to other people because you know I know my my research is extremely niche like I do not expect people to understand what I what I'm talking about when I say like inscribed stone monuments in early medieval wells however I think you know if I'm given like a second to explain it and talk about it and you know help people understand that we still live in a, a world that's very dictated by power and um, patriarchy and right the same forces of power the same collections of power yeah same forces of power that it gives you know i think people an opportunity to then look deeper and reflect how do i connect to the land that i'm on in this present moment and how do I participate in the spiritual and natural ecologies that are present? Yeah, that can mean something different for, for every single person and, and where you Absolutely. are. Yeah, it is it, it is so exciting to like talk about this. And I really appreciate being able to have this space to talk about it. It is so needed. And, you know, it is my first time talking about these things in this type of way. So I really do hope it came across to the listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here and and just opening up and sharing such personal stories and connecting your work to this real lived and felt experience. It's been beautiful to explore that with you. What are you working on now and where can people find your work? Yeah, so I think the easiest way to find my work is on academia.edu. And then my actual thesis and work, I plan to publish at some point. But I think if you just follow me on there, that's the easiest way to access my work currently I actually am taking parts of my thesis that I was not able to fully flesh out and talk about and bring it into spaces such as looking at stone monuments and more of the folkloric traditions around those monuments and then I also have some other research that I'm working on I don't know how much I want to share about it because it's still very uh, preliminary however it still is very much tied to ancestral work and I think healing, deconstructing, and will still be all about things like gender, sexuality. And I'm excited to have more opportunities to bring together my research around just even using more queer theory. And I think that is something that's very much developing and I, I'm obsessed with it. I love it. And yeah, I think that that's all I can say for now about it. But yeah. Excited to hear more and follow your work. Are there any places on social media that people can connect with you? My Instagram or? is not necessarily academic, but you can follow me. Elf.siren. E-L-F dot S-I-R-E-N. And we'll have this stuff linked in the description as well. Erica, thank you so much. It's been really great chatting with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a part of the first episode of Occulted. To follow for future episodes and learn more about me, Jove Spooky, you can visit spooky.com. That's S-P-U-C-C-H-I dot com. 
Oh, 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 oh,